The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Welcome back to the Cinematography Podcast Sundance Special Episodes. This is episode three of four. This time the theme is drama. Drama. I feel I feel drama, and we're going to start drama by talking about a documentary, but I, I'm assuming it's a dramatic documentary. Very dramatic documentary about the Women's March, but we are also going to keep the banter to a minimum this time. So, Very minimum. Yeah. So Without gonna, further ado, this is personal. This is Ilya Friedman from the Cinematography Podcast, and I'm sitting down with Tarsten Tilo. How did I do? You did it. That was was perfect. Thank you. Hey, uh, you are the director of photography for This Is Personal. It's a new documentary that's getting a lot of buzz here at the festival. It's about the Women's March. And I'm sure that you can actually do a a better description of the movie than I can. But tell us a little bit about about This Is Personal. So This Is Personal began after Donald Trump got elected. And there's a lot of a lot of people that I've been working with uh, were thinking we need to we need to make a film about what happened during the election, what happened and specifically what happened to women in America, because so, so many of us could not understand how women in particular could vote for Donald Trump. Amy Brooks, the director, got approached by Paramount and they, they came to her and said, we need to make a film about women and what happened during the election. And then uh, there was a long searching pro- process in, in what can that film be? That's a very general topic. The filmmaking began sort of almost as a casting process at the Women's March. Mm. We went down to the Women's March and... In Los Angeles? It, no, the Women's March in, in Washington, In DC. Washington, okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, I know there were women's marches all over the country. I know, so. I know, yeah. But uh, so the one in Washington, D.C., which is famous, had uh, hundreds of thousands of women showed up for that. Day. Yeah, yeah, yeah there were hundreds of, yeah, exactly. And so we went down and we, we filmed at the headquarters, um, mostly with the, the, the co-chair organizers of the Women's March, and met these met these two amazing women that, that, that were organizers, um, Erica Andiola and, and, and Tamika Mallory. And with them a lot a lot of other people that can come in and out of their storyline but we, we very quickly quickly realized that those two were ideal characters to sort of talk about what's going on right now in, in our country and and so erica is a dreamer um she's been fighting for for um the rights of immigrants for many many years and and tamika is is a black lives matter activist and is fighting for black communities and 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 having their voices heard and so we followed them for a year and that journey and and it was an amazing process mostly a process that that had twists and turns around every corner so one of the things about shooting a, a documentary of course is that you end up with tons and tons of material you shoot mm. you shoot a lot and then it ends up getting cut down into something that's that's manageable and so much stuff and ends up you know of course being thrown away but the process of actually getting that material shot and in the can and then getting to, to sort it all out. Uh, tell me a little bit about what your your methodology or crew looked like. I, I imagine that there's a lot to cover. You have lots of interviews, plus you also have um, slice of life, verite in people's homes. So you had in the street activism sort of uh, capturing uh, the, the action of what's happening during the protest. Tell me about what your, your crew and your sort of setup looked like to configure all of these different ways. 
Yeah, that's that's really interesting because Amy and I started a collaboration on an HBO show that was very designed and very cinematic. We spent a lot of time designing that show and it's called The Case Against Adnan Saeed. Oh, yes, of course. Um, yeah. Based on the, the, serial. the serial podcast yeah, yeah, by that, Karen Koenig. Exactly. I think a lot of people a lot of people saw that and a lot of people listened to that. A lot of people never heard a podcast before before serial. Exactly. So, yeah. Um, that 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 series is coming out in May in, at HBO, so that's almost shot and it's almost done. So coming from that and collaborating with Amy in that in in a, in a very cinematic way with heavily designed interviews and and big lights and big crews and and using gimbals for for for, for a lot of the scenes, we realized very quickly that this is personal. This film about these activists is nothing like that. It that's that's a pure verite film. We didn't do any formal sit-down interviews. We never used a single light for any of this. Um, this was real, raw filmmaking. And so we decided to be as small as we possibly could. That included me being a one-man band often. Mm. And if not a one-man band, then I was a two-man band with Amy. So we put a lavalier microphone on people and on our subjects. And I had one lens and one camera, a tiny package. It looks tiny. Uh, t tell me about that lens. What, what lens could you shoot an entire Verite documentary running around the streets, running uh, running around in people's homes? What, what one lens could do all of that? So I used a, a 35 millimeter prime. Um, I shot consistently at, at an F2. Partly I wanted to, I, I knew from the beginning that we would have many shooters, many people working on this. And I tried to create some sort of some visual coherency throughout the shooting with limiting myself and, and, and everybody else to, to, to one lens. So everybody who came in then also only had the 35. 35 was the only option? That was the idea, but then that turns very quickly into the reality of documentary filmmaking. How much, how much of that 35 you think ends up on the final screen? You think 50% of the movie shot on the 35? You think maybe 10% or 90%? What would you guess? I would guess that it, it might, be, might be 20% at best because some of the key shooters including myself, were often just not available. For the call from one of our activists saying, we are going to Washington to get arrested tomorrow to demonstrate for this and that. And nobody was free. So yeah. there was often just fellow activists filming and they wouldn't even talk to me beforehand. They just had a 5D or whatever camera they had available on their phone. With, with documentary, it's so much more important to, to get the shot, to actually get it, than to not get it at all. So, exactly. so sometimes you have to you know, take whatever that you can, whatever you can get, but it's very painful. And, to and me. that's a, uh, I'm sure it's painful, but it's also really painful to get the call at nine o'clock at night for the next day. Hey, we're going to get arrested. Can you be out there to, to, to capture this? Uh, <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. That, that's got, that's got to be tough for your schedule. And you shot over the course of a year. So it was a year's worth of pretty much exactly. And yeah. I, I mean, I, I watched it and I noticed that there was footage from November, 2018. We're in January, 2019 right now. So the post-production must've been going on all this time, including like up until a month or so ago. That's, I mean, that's, Oh, I, I think until two weeks ago, until two weeks yeah. ago, until right yeah. before the premiere. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and I got to say, uh, once it comes around to the end of the movie and you can almost get the, I don't want to say moral of the story because it's not really what it is, but when you get to the end and you see that activism equals then political uh, political action and political inclusion, I think that's a really powerful message that, that really just kind of comes in right where the credits are, but you see like really recent documentary footage from the, the you know, the, the sweep of the House of Representatives and all of the new women who have never been in politics before coming into power, which is, I think, kind of a... An amazing emotional 
like climax that happens right at the, like at the credits of the movie. It's 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 not like a movie I've seen before. Do that. No, that's and that's that's amazing that that actually just happened when 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 we set out to 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 make an analysis piece about what happened to women in America during the election. And a lot happened after the election. There was a lot of waking up and organizing, grassroots, grassroots organizing. And people, especially women, were mad. They got angry. And Tamika and Erica and so many other women started organizing for women. And, and now you see the result of that in some ways, that this, this past election was entirely different than, than in 2016. You know, actually, um, I just saw another movie here at Sundance that uh, was all shot on a 55 millimeter anamorphic lens, which de-squeezed is pretty close to a 32 or a 35 millimeter. I think it's very interesting the number of movies that are kind of going for this style or trying to have a consistency in their focal length. Yeah. Uh, tell me more about which 35 millimeter lens this, this, that you used and uh, how what 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 you were thinking when you were, because you, you are limiting yourself. You're giving yourself a restriction by saying, I'm only going to use one focal length. That seems like it should make it harder to do what you want to do. It can be harder in a way, but it also, it, it forces you in a way of filmmaking that, that needs to per definition be close to your subject. For example, for, um, for this documentary um, that's here at Sundance, you need, we needed to see the world through our characters. We, we needed to be the camera the camera needed to be looking through their eyes and experience what they experience. And what I find so interesting with just using one lens is that that you you need to be with that person at all times. And what's also interesting is that you explore a scene and the space in a completely different way than, than with a zoom. With a zoom, you often just stay where you are, you punch in for, for, for a different shot. And with a, a prime lens you cannot do that because then it becomes uncuttable so you have to explore the space the fact that you do that makes you explore and you discover new angles and and interesting shots and that makes the filmmaking process really interesting to me as a cinematographer but it also gives you the consistency of the same compression throughout an entire film which i think gives you more the feeling you're witnessing the story through somebody's eyes because the compression doesn't change every five seconds. And the other thing is that I try to shoot everything at the same f-stop to be, con be be consistent with that. That was the idea to to stay as visually coherent as we as we could. Trying to shoot everything at the same stop, and I'm going to go slightly into to technical mode here, uh, means that if your lighting conditions change, you're probably having to add some sort of filtration in front of the lens to keep the, the light level consistent. Otherwise, you'd be overexposed or possibly having to add lights because you might be underexposed. Uh, when you're on the fly like that, are you screwing on filters quickly or using an internal filter? How, how do you go about keeping that exposure consistent from uh, you know, keeping everything at a, at a two? Or is it really more planned out that you say, okay, I'm going to be in this area and I'm going to shoot everything in this area at a two, then we're going to another area and then I'm getting all ready for that to shoot in this area at, at a two. How, how does how does that go about? You want to talk See, about that, that would be impossible with okay. most with the ten years ago. That would have been impossible to shoot documentary at with that approach, but now now there is cameras on the market that have built in neutral density filters. So so the so the Canon Mark the Canon C three hundred Mark two actually gives me that ability because it has a lot of it has ten stops of of um, ND filters built in. So when I go from one situation to the next where the lighting changes, I hit a button and I lose a stop or two or three. I can just dial it in. So I can leave, I can stay with the same F-stop. That's pretty amazing. And that, that is just within the last few years, cameras became available that can actually do that. 
Canon has really actually been doing remarkable work, especially in the documentary space. I believe all of the 20, all of the Academy Award nominated documentaries this year were shot on Canon cameras, which it's like, you know, you're, you're doing something right when, when all of these projects, these high profile projects are being commended for their work and they're all using the same technology, which is phenomenal. I'm a big fan of that, that camera as well. And the internal NDs, it's a, thing that's existed in the broadcast side of course forever but never to that to never to that amount of gradation never to that amount of uh, adjustability which is amazing right so. right yeah i had one film that was shortlisted um good for you but then we didn't get the nomination you, so know, you know what <laughs> the, the academy the academy awards i always feel like in of all the categories that needs more nominations it should be documentary yeah i mean uh, i they, agree the, the IDA does a, a one, the International Documentary Association does a wonderful job of showcasing the stuff that does get nominated, but there's a lot of snubs. Let me tell you, there's so many great documentaries, great, great documentaries yeah. that that didn't make it and yeah. don't make it. Uh, a lot of people were talking about the uh, Mr. Rogers documentary that, that didn't make it this year. And yeah. I, everyone uh, I saw it with or I, I talked to left that theater in tears. So it's like, yeah. you know, when you have a, that much of an emotional response, but tell me about, uh, tell me about your mindset when you step into a documentary and you're, you're on the set, something the set, which is a real location. It's uh, something's happening. It's verite. Do you concern yourself more about framing or more about lighting? Do you have a, 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 do you approach what you're seeing more from a lighting perspective, trying to understand how the light is going to interplay with your subjects, or is it more about framing and trying to get your composition the way the way that you would like? Do you separate the two? Do you keep them equal? What, what's your what's your process? For me, documentary filmmaking gets exciting when both the content and the cinematic quality come together. The most important rule for me being in a situation where where action just happens in front of me uncontrolled and I follow it is to capture that moment. But I, the, the second most important, important part is where am I in relationship to the light? I think that's the, that's the main rule. And you can make a choice, even in a scene that in, unfolds in front of you and you have no idea what's going to happen next. You can make a choice where you are. I can't move the subjects around, but I can move. And so I do focus a lot on where the light comes from and where I am in relationship to my subjects. And I try to, at the same time, frame as purposeful as I can. So for me, that it, it, it is important in documentary filmmaking that it looks interesting, that it looks purposeful. And I have a hard time watching documentaries that just look shitty. I have a hard time watching anything that actually looks yeah. look shitty. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's an immediate turnoff. And uh, I think that um, a, a lot of people make a lot of uninformed people out there. Cinematography is a very misunderstood craft. And I think there's a lot of people out there who decide, oh, yeah, you can get a good exposure on your iPhone so or, or on your, your cell phone. So we don't need a camera pointer. We don't need to pay someone, you know, a lot of money a day to decide where this camera is being pointed. And to me, that is YouTube. I would say 90% of the stuff on YouTube, maybe maybe a higher, is is unwatchably. It's unwatchably ugly. Absolutely. And, I couldn't and, agree more. And if you really <laughs> want to have like a experience where you're engaged and you're, flow, you're flowing through a concept or an idea, it at least has to be passable. And most of that content out there these days isn't like that. And I see some of that, the YouTubeification happening to streaming services and even to motion pictures. And the best stuff is able to marry the good looking content, the well technically produced content with the wonderful, engaging story that that takes right. you to another place. And so I think as as long as there is no auto shoot and auto edit button, there will be people with skills employed. And I, d I don't think we're getting to that point just yet. We may we maybe in our lifetime, but 
we got decades. We got yeah, decades I, before I, I before auto shoot and yeah, auto thanks, edit thanks, comes. Torsten, <laughs> uh, uh, please uh, tell me a little bit more about yourself. Where did you get the the bug for being a cameraman? Where did uh, I mean? I looked at your your filmography. You have a, a a lot of documentary work on there. Where does uh, where does this come from? How did you get your start? So when I was a kid, I was part of this small youth group in a tiny town in Germany, and we one summer decided to to start a TV channel. So we purchased a license for a TV channel in my town and they had, in, in, on top of the townhouse, they had a little distribution center and we got permission to have a one hour broadcast on Sundays. We received old cameras from, actually from people that were part of the RIF in Germany, the political organization. That organization didn't exist anymore, but some of the people I knew had, still had the camera equipment, Umatic, camera equipment oh yes three quarter inch that's yeah uh, yeah that's famous they gave us an entire edit suite a three three deck editing suite and two cameras and so we started making social political pieces about our town very catholic town very divided town politically and and what's the town called uh, the town is called botnik it's in in the very in the south of germany which is a very conservative and religious town i left home when i was 16 essentially got kicked out by my parents because i was just too much of a rebel you rebelled against uh, your parents or the town or everything or? but against everything against re against religion against nosiness of people and when i was 16 i went to to the capital and i found a filmmaker and dp who had a similar story he came from the south and he had sympathy with me and he took me on as a 16 year old so I, I learned from him. He said, I, I will take you on under one condition. Um, if you want to become a DP, you have to edit first. Hmm. So he made me he made me edit. So f from 16 to, to about 25, I, I, I was an editor. And I, was, I, I got really good at it. I edited um, big German documentaries. Well, that makes a lot of sense, though, really, because in order to be a good shooter, you have to know how the pictures go together. You have to know yeah. what, what should follow what. So yeah. uh, I have to imagine that mandate for you to learn editing before shooting probably ended up helping you to become a better shooter. Oh, absolutely. It, 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 it helps a great deal, not only in technical ways, but to, to, to think like a filmmaker, to think in scenes and, and really in the moment while, you, while you're making a documentary, think about how, how the story is actually going to play on screen. And it, it was a great training. Yeah. Okay, so you're 16 years old. You're in Berlin. I'm in Stuttgart. Stuttgart. State okay. Mm -hmm. okay, gotcha. Yeah. I mean, talk about uh, completely uprooting and changing your life. Uh, does editing or documentary production with the RAF, with the, <laughs> all the three-quarter inch gear and everything else, uh, does that? Do you throw yourself into that? Is that your new thing, or are you? I mean, you're, you'd still otherwise to be in secondary school. You'd be in high school at that at that point, right? So, uh, did you did you finish high school? I didn't. You didn't. No. All right. So, no. Uh, no, I, I, I essentially I was so busy creating my, my um, television station and and maintaining that, um, that after eleventh grade, my father said you have to stop all of this, um, and just study and work on work on school. And I said I won't. And then he said, then you have to leave my house. Wow. All right. And so I left, because I knew I knew I was gonna I wanted to make movies and I I wanted to make documentaries and I at the time was so excited about just making it and I think I'm a person that learns through doing stuff better than than the theory I think in in film and television that's that's always been true yeah. too I, I can't tell you how many people I've, I've spoken to over the years who uh, paid maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars to go to get these very expensive educations yeah. only to wind up on set and not realize that they had any 
uh, real preparation, not didn't really know what they needed to know to, to be there and that it was like learning all over again. So I yeah. think that that's really important. The, the practical hands on yeah. doing yeah. so. Uh, OK, so now you're you're running a television station uh, or you're 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 producing all this content and you're editing this content. Uh, where do you go from there? Where do you go from there to uh, to shooting to shooting projects? So then I edited a lot of documentaries and became pretty good as an editor and, and sort of known in Stuttgart documentary circle. Mm. Um, because I edited so fast, I often would accompany teams to go make documentaries on the ground. Mm. So for example, we were, we were sent to Iraq mm. to, wow. to document what was going on before the war and, and other situations uh, like Kosovo and, and the conflict there and, and a big flood in Mozambique. Is it traveling the world, covering uh, news and documentaries? Covering news. And I did, I did a fair amount of just hard news for German public television. And out of those trips, Often came a doc, longer documentary that ended up being being an arte in, in within the European sort of uh, public television exchange and um, traveling. Then very quickly, it was I just picked up a camera and started shooting. And so for quite some time, I I had this little niche where I could do both. I could go out, travel the world, and shoot, and then edit my own stuff. And, and see the world through a viewfinder. And see the world through a viewfinder, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but then also go back to the hotel room and, and, and use that material immediately to cut a package for the, for the news and make it into a longer documentary. But I, I, I got the immediate result. I shot footage often at the same night I had to edit it. It's so hard to do so many different jobs like that and to, and to do them well. So that's a real testament to your, your skill and talent because, uh, I mean, it used to be very segmented. Now, of course, we have these things called predators, which is the producer, the camera person, the editor, all, all in one. But I kind of feel like when you force someone to do all of those jobs, you, you don't really get the best work out of them because you're forcing someone to split their brain in so many different ways if they have to organize where the where the hell the the hotel is where the hell lunch is and you know it dealing with the client and shooting and editing and doing all that that just the fact that you could do like those two technical things which didn't have to happen at the exact same time is still incredibly impressive because ultimately when i talk to some of these people who call themselves predators these producer camera people editors all, all in one uh, what happens is is that they end up making their primary responsibility that something is in focus because if it's not in focus they can't use it at all and that means that the production the producing is is um could be flawed the camera work could be flawed because it's only about it just actually capturing at that moment and then the editing is like just whatever they can to put it together i really appreciate specialists i really appreciate people who can do multi-talented hyphenate type of work like that like camera person and editor too so tell me when did you start specializing when did the editing work sort of fall aside or do you still edit today are you uh, are you still doing some of that or is it now nothing but but camera so I, I, I got married to, to an amazing American woman who actually came when I met her. I lived in Mexico and she lived there with me for five years. And I worked in, in the um, European public Central America station, essentially making, making documentaries. And um, after five years, she, we moved to Brazil and lived there for three years. And then it was sort of her, t her turn to decide where to move, where to live next. Mm. And she wanted to go back to New York where, where her life was. And so I abandoned that job with, with the public television station, which was like a 10-year. I could never have gotten fired. It was like a deal. With, they loved like, you. Like every, no, but it was like one of those public TV deals where yeah. you get like a nice fat retirement and everything is taken care of. It was a sweet deal. <laughs> but then I, I, got to, I got to America and I didn't know anyone. 
like wow. literally nobody starting all over i started all over we had two small kids that were born in brazil and that was scary and and i i think i figured out very quickly that as an editor i wouldn't I wouldn't make it fast enough. First, mm. my language skills aren't good enough to really deep. Like it was. That's not true. It was well. It was a. It, <laughs> at, at the time, as an editor, you have to you have to sort of really get deep into stuff. And honestly, it was also um, the financial aspect because mm. as an editor, there's it's it's completely different rates. And and so I immediately stopped editing and 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 focused only on shooting. Although I had been doing most of my time, spending most of my time shooting the the previous ten years. But once we moved here, I stopped. And, and started shooting exclusively. Uh, and I, I alluded to or I mentioned Dirty Money recently because that was another piece of that you had done that I'd seen. Uh, but, oh, cool. Uh, yeah, you, you've uh, you've really specialized in a lot of these. Um, I don't want to use reality uh, as a pejorative because people go, oh, reality, but no, documentary and, uns- and unscripted documentary long format series and, and movies. Tell me, tell me about what that was like starting over, breaking in. Did you feel like, oh my God, I got to work for free now? I got to build a uh, build local context. How how was moving from Brazil, where you've got you know, uh, you know a, a really sweet gig, to starting all over in New York? How how does that go? It was an amazing experience because what I always heard about the American dream actually happened for me, and I know I, I have a lot of privilege and I, I I I feel guilt about it as a white male, but I was received with open arms by amazing people. I, I walked into this DP's agent's office and this guy um, that, does it, that who is a DP agent, a veteran DP agent, said, oh, you are the third German walking through this door. The first one was Michael Bauhaus. And oh, wow. I got him started all right when oh, well, he yeah, came yeah, right no, off the ship. No kidding. Oh, my goodness. And, yeah. and then the second one was this guy, Wolfgang Held, who was, who was a German cinematographer, pretty well known. And he said, well, I can't put you in touch with, Wolf, with Michael Ballhaus, but I can put you in touch with Wolfgang Held. And so Wolfgang and I met and, and Wolfgang had been sort of specialized in, in verite filmmaking and pure documentary filmmaking. And that's what I have been doing for the past 10 years. So we hit it off and he was so generous with me. And out of that friendship, we started a collective. A, a collective with like-minded people. This is in New York. This is in New York, so it's it's a collective of uh, six DPs. Mm-hmm. It still exists today. It still exists. All it's right. an amazing group. Cool. Um, it's how it, often do you get together? We get we try to get together every month. We we have monthly screenings, so we have a we have a screening room that in 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 cooperation with the SVA mm-hmm. Film School um, film program and. So is that we, the Society of Visual Arts? Uh, is it, what is the SVA? I'm sorry. SVA, School of Visual Arts. School of Visual Arts, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So two of our members teach there. Anyway, so through Wolfgang, I got to meet these other cinematographers that do uh, work in a, in, a, in a similar style, which is sort of verite filmmaking per, as per definition, just document reality as it happens, and, and who have made a name for themselves in that field. And so we hit it off as a group, and we, we, we started a, a, a collective that really all we do is come together and talk about our issues and problems and success and um that's nice it's we, like a, a support group it's a support group it's amazing and and uh the we, cinematographer support group we get it. together and have bratwurst and beer sometimes oh, that's awesome and, that's fantastic and, uh, yeah and and we share jobs and that's actually amazing and that's how what helped me so much arriving in america because all of these people have been amazingly generous with referring me to directors they work with and if they couldn't do a job they 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 said oh why don't you try this german guy his name is torsten he's he's just got here and that referral is worth 
so much. It's it's worth everything. It's I think worth that, everything. I think that's yeah. where yeah. Everyone I know who's a freelancer, ninety percent is word of mouth. But I mean, Absolutely. you can you can have a nice reel online. You can have a nice Facebook page. Whatever it is, it's yeah. like no, it's, it's someone the, you worked with yeah. told someone else, and then they hired you, and you did a good job, yeah. and then they told someone else, yeah. and so yeah. that and that's how it perpetuates. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so okay. I got so lucky. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, tell our listeners where they can find you. Where Are you online somewhere? Do you do the Instagrams or the Twitters or the Facebooks? Do you have something like that if someone wants to follow your, your work? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Where, where can people find you? Um, my Instagram handle is ThorCore, like Thor, like the God, and yeah. Core from Hardcore. Okay. I made that up. I was probably a little too drunk <laughs> 10 years ago, but it's still the same. Nice. Um, and then I can be found on Facebook, Torsentilo. Torsten, what's next for you? What's what's the next? Uh, what do you have something else lined up? I know you're you're going to be out uh, probably doing some stuff for this is personal, and I know you have the HBO series that's coming soon. But what, what what's next on your on your lineup of documentary work? So I'm in production right now on a nine hour Netflix series that is in in um, collaboration with the Innocence Project, mm. and so it's nine stories um, about wrongfully convicted people. It is an amazing journey. We've we've been meeting with really amazing people that have gone to jail some of them for 25 years some of them have spent 10 years on death row and and always knew they were innocent and it took uh, it took often exoneration through dna yeah. evidence yeah. generally that's is that the innocence project uh in a nutshell really is the the dna yeah. evidence testing yeah yeah that's a, that's that's great work that's it's like, an amazing part yeah. it's an amazing work because it, it 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 is not it's not a typical true crime show it, it is real people that have souls and that still live and they can tell their story. So it's actually been a lot of just real verity filmmaking. What, what amazes me is that none of these people are bitter. Mm. They have, they, they come out of jail and they say, I forgive you for putting me in jail and, and just live their life. So that's, that's mostly what I'm working on. I'm working on a, on a seven hour HBO show that is about the Golden State Killer. There is this book by Michelle McNamara oh, very called, famous. called yeah. I'll Be Gone in the Dark. Um, her husband um, is a famous comedian. And, and so I'm, I'm shooting this um, series with Liz Garbus. Uh, I just came, got back from Los Angeles on Friday and, and we have an amazing week of production. So Tor- those two things keep me busy. You are busy. No, no kidding. That, that's a lot of stuff. Torsten, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's really been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for having me. It's been fun. All right, so that was This Is Personal. Uh, thank you so much, Torsten, for uh, being on the show. It was spectacular. We'd, we'd love to have you back again. We need to get more DPs when we go to Sundance. Like, I wonder, yeah, anyway. Okay, so, uh, I mean, I should talk. I was, I was in Sundance for, like, all of 20 hours. But we already talked about that in episode one. So I'm going to move on to another film called Them That Follow. Yeah, Them That Follow. I had a really great conversation with uh, Britt and Dan, the co-directors of the movie. That movie got picked up by 1091 Media, which uh, might be better known to people as The Orchard. And uh, here is the interview. I'm Britt Poulton, the co-writer, co-director of Them That Follow. And I'm Dan Savage, co-writer and co-director of Them That Follow. Britt, Dan, uh, thank you so much for coming on the Cinematography Podcast. 
Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you for having us. We're so thrilled to be sitting with you. Here in Park City. <laughs> yes, it's the Sundance 2019 Film Festival, and you guys have a very well-received movie called Them That Follow. Uh, congratulations on the world premiere the other night, and uh, I know that you guys have been getting some uh, good feedback. I know that uh, when I left the theater, it was tons and tons of, of, uh, of great things being said about your, your movie. Uh Tell me uh, that your movie is currently undistributed, you, or do you have a distributor already lined up, or what's... Uh, we what's, actually what's, have uh, really exciting news. It was announced last night that The Orchard bought North American rights to our film, and we couldn't be more thrilled. They are collaborative, insightful, and tenacious, and we're in very good hands. And we're just so excited to share all of the incredible work of our collaborators, our cast, our crew, and to be able to show it on the big screen in movie theaters across the country. It's just a dream come true. It's what every filmmaker wants out of the Sundance Film Festival. Well, a big congratulations to you. The Orchard is a wonderful partner. I know a lot of people who do, who do work with them. So um, I could certainly describe your movie, but but I think it's always better when the filmmakers do it. So uh, give, give me the quick, it doesn't have to be a log line, but give me the quick you know, yeah. description of your movie. Our film is an exploration of an obscure sect of American Pentecostalism part of a century-old tradition of handling venomous snakes as part of your church worship. These communities have been mocked and maligned and are misunderstood, and as a result, they stay pretty reclusive. Uh, most have pushed away in the hills of Appalachia. That's where our story starts, uh, where we imagine what it means to be set apart from the world, and especially what it means for a young woman. And that's really the lens through which we explore this unseen space uh, through her experience as she comes of age in such a narrow space. It's, it's really some tour de force performances in this, in this uh, movie. Tell me a little bit about how um, you, came to, you came to your cast. Because uh, I mean, I, I know that you guys had a limited budget. Uh, it's it's an independent movie, so it was uh, independently financed. Um, but you got some great names. You got some great performances. Talk a little bit about how that came to be. Well, them that follow has been a six-year journey to get to Sundance, uh, and there have been a few partners with us along the way for quite a duration of that time. Our producing partner Danielle Robinson, who is really uh, the third member of this partnership and of this film. Uh, fought for this film and dedicated herself to seeing it realized. And this must have been five years ago uh, that we reached out to Alice Engler to play the role of Mara Childs, who is a pastor's daughter struggling with doubt and has a forbidden relationship that forces her to begin to confront the dangerous traditions of her family's church. And Alice responded to the material, uh, signed on to the movie, and stayed with us through all the ups and downs. Uh, Thomas Mann joined her very shortly thereafter and again remained on for many, many years. Uh, I think that brings us to about three years ago when Olivia Coleman joined uh, mm -hmm. and she too stayed with us, um, taking a risk on two untested filmmakers. As the movie steamrolled towards production, uh, that's when we added Walt Goggins, Caitlin Deaver, Lewis Pullman, and Jim Gaffigan. Jim Gaffigan yeah, yeah. Of course, it's a it's a great looking movie too. I mean, it's, mm. there's there's a starkness that exists in, in your frame, and it's a very I'm going to say slightly desaturated color palette, and uh, because it seems like it's overcast skies through probably 99% of this movie, or or taking place at night. Uh, tell me about a uh, tell me a little bit about working with your uh, director of photography and uh, how you guys came up with a look for this movie. 
Yes, uh, Brett Jukowitz is the brilliant cinematographer we were so fortunate to partner with um, on our film. He has such a beautiful eye and such a subtle hand when he's exploring a world, and that's something that we really responded to. He puts the narrative and the story first before um, any technical ambition, and we really responded to the subtleties um, and how he approaches his craft. Uh, but more than anything, we knew that on a limited budget, it would be a great feat to not only make our days, but to make them artfully. The conversation with the visual tone of the film was really a continuation of Brit and my conversation um, about the story and the characters. Uh, we wanted to capture the spirit of the snake handlers visually, and and there's an extraordinary closeness that they have to nature and the natural world in their faith and in their faith practice. And so when we sat down with Brett, that was our first pr priority, was to really um, create opportunities on our, on our limited budget to show Mara in nature, to show this community in nature, in the natural world. We were shooting in Ohio in November, which gets a little cold, so the skies were overcast. Our forecast was freezing, but- um, it, it looks cold in the movie. Yes, yeah, that, yes. That comes through. Oh my gosh, <laughs> does it. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I thought it was intentional. It seemed like it was all part of it. I mean, people yeah. look bundled up and like it doesn't yeah, look warm. Yeah. You know, there's one other point I wanted to make. Snake handling has been around for a hundred years, but it's still practiced today. Um, and when we were talking about the visual tone of the film, we were also talking about how you represent a community, as Brit so eloquently said, that has stepped back uh, from secular society and to a degree from the modern world. And this is a community that carries so much of the past with it. And so with a film that is set in the present day, visually, how do we communicate that these characters carry so much tradition and history with them? Um, and Brett, um, really recommended using these extraordinary vintage lenses on our Ari Alexa. Ooh, which the, lenses are those? Uh, the Cook Pancros oh, lenses. They're classics. And it really created this gorgeous, organic, even film-like texture that just creates a little bit of magic. You know, the, the colors are a little brighter, the darks are a little darker. Um, and I'm so glad that he was able to find those, those lenses for us because I know they're hard to get. Um, yeah, they haven't made them in, in decades, but they, they actually have kind of a new version now, which is kind of fun, but that, that's a conversation for another time. So, uh, Britt, what were you about to say? Something really special that Brett was able to capture, as Dan alluded to, is the overall tone that we were exploring, the very hard balance uh, between these people's everyday lives and the extraordinary stakes of those lives. And so uh, finding that, that beautiful combination of uh, realism and tension, uh, we knew it was gonna be hard to execute. And Brett was able to do that by bringing an intimacy and an immediacy to his handheld camera work. Uh, he did all of the camera work himself, and he was extraordinary in finding those moments uh, between the actors and really pivoting in scenes and exploring uh, their performance uh, on his own. And that comes across on screen. You do feel the immediacy and the intimacy of those scenes so beautifully. And we were so fortunate to have such a creative and intuitive partner in Brett. One of the things we talk about on this show quite a bit is uh, the relationship between the director or directors mm -hmm. and the cinematographer. Uh, 
how did you and Brett meet? Have you guys worked together on something else? I know you're your first time feature directors, mm-hmm. but um, how, how did your paths cross and what was that experience like working together? Before we left for Ohio to shoot the film, we were looking for directors of photography um, and we knew that it, we wanted to have an intimate relationship. You know, uh, Britt and I are our partners. You know, we're very collaborative by nature. Movies are collaborative and we, um, and we thought that's what we love about them. And so we really wanted someone on our team who would feel like a co-equal partner. Uh, and I can still remember, you know, we're going out to all the agencies as you do. Um, and I spotted his name and right next to it, I, I saw this film called Men Who Go to Battle, which I had seen a few years prior. And Brett had done an extraordinary job on a very limited budget with that film. And I it was almost like lightning struck in my head. And I just sort of knew in that moment that he was going to be our guy. Um, I turned to Brett and I said, oh my gosh, we have to meet this guy. And I believe we interrupted his wedding weekend <laughs> to so, do so. Oh gosh. I, I was also a huge fan of his work in Men Go to Battle. Uh, it's a beautiful film, a period piece set in Civil War era. But what is so special about it is his photography. He brought such poetry and richness to that world. And you don't feel how low budget it is. It feels rich. Every frame feels exquisite because of Brett. And we, I mean, truthfully, when we first Skyped with him, because he's based in New York, we were just on pins and needles hoping that he was going to be everything that we hoped. But he was so much more. He's thoughtful and smart and truly puts story and narrative before anything else. And he became uh, a great partner to us and a great friend. And we relied on him for even notes on the script. And <laughs> and yes, uh, we did actually take him off of his honeymoon. Uh, he was about to get married in Marfa. And uh, I think they were uh, planning their wedding or or they were just about to get married and we uh, needed him to stop everything to meet our producers so we could lock him down. (laughs) Thanks, Brett. (laughs) Thank you, Brett. <laughs> well, uh, just another example of a DP going uh, way above and beyond, as as they sometimes t- yeah. t- tend to do. Uh, okay, so uh, you you guys are co-directors, you're co-screenwriters. Tell me a little bit about the division of labor, especially. Um, is one of you more working with actors? One of you more working with camera? Did you divide the duties that way? Did you have like a 50-50 partnership? Did, uh, how, how, does, uh, how does like a typical day on the set with you two collaborating work with your lead camera team and the actors? I would say our partnership is 100%, 100%. Ooh, um, okay. We share all responsibilities, all passions. Um, Britt and I are both people who like to mer- wear many hats. And this film, as I said, is a, six-year collaboration uh it took us two years to write the script it was the first script either of us ever wrote we taught ourselves how to write we taught each other how to write we helped each other be brave and so the story of this film is the story of our partnership so by the time we arrived on set we had had a lot of the creative kinks worked out we had had (laughs) a million and one conversations about every nuance of the script every possible thing that could go wrong could go right um, we were absolutely prepared when we were walking on set and in part also because we had such an amazing and supportive producing team that were such a great resource to us. 
but um, our partnership isn't divided. I know that a lot of uh, directing partnerships work that way. That didn't make sense for us. As Dan said, we're both passionate about every aspect of filmmaking. That's why we wanted to be filmmakers. And also why we wanted to be filmmakers is because we want to work with people and we want to collaborate. So we really did do everything together. And it worked really well for us. And we developed a shorthand very quickly. Uh, and the cast and the crew knew that we were making decisions together and it was it was easy and I have to tell you making a movie is so hard and going in this process is so hard and scary and there are so many nights filled with doubt and tears and ice cream and to have a partner in that foxhole is really something special and because it can be a lonely process putting your art into the world and exposing yourself in that way putting yourself out there in that way and to have somebody by your side it makes it a lot more fun frankly <laughs> i think as brit sort of said you know all film is collaborative by nature and because we are a partnership i think that our sets are even more collaborative. I think we as people and as filmmakers, we just wanted to get things right and to have a positive experience out there in Ohio, um, and we did. And that's because we allowed the solutions to problems to come from anywhere, you know? They could have come from Brit, they could have come from Brett, they could have come from the stand-in, they could have come from Olivia Coleman. Um, and that was really the working attitude of our set was, let's make the best movie possible, let's have fun on this shoot the short shoot that we have we'll say, and let's do what, it yes <laughs> something we always said is we don't need to be right we just want to get it right mm. and that's sort of the ethos of our partnership and certainly what we tried to live up to on set every day but you say it's a short shoot how, how long was your shoot am it i allowed, just, are we allowed to say i forget <laughs> I, have the rules changed just long well, enough. It um, was not long enough. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, 28 days, 35 days, 40 days, 18 days. What did, what did, what did, what did, what's short for you? It, it was a, a 642 day shoot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was. Um, we all lived in Ohio. I'm, I'm, I'm an Ohio. I paid taxes in Ohio now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think one of the incredible things about Sundance is that it is this forum for so many filmmakers who've been working on very limited budgets, very limited schedules, very limited resources, <clears throat> and have made something and made something special. And I think we're all here because of our limitations, um, because we embraced what was difficult and what we couldn't do, and we worked around it. Creativity really does come from yeah. constraint. And when we stared down the hard truth of our schedule and prep, uh, Dan and I galvanized and did the really hard thing, and that was cut pages from our script before we ever walked foot on set because we were determined to not shoot a schedule but to make a movie. And so we ended up cutting about 12 pages from our scripts before we went into production so we could have some breathing room, so we could make mistakes, so we could breathe and imagine in between moments. And I'm so proud of us for doing that, for killing some of our darlings early on and really crystallizing what this movie is about. And we never had to make any creative concessions, significant creative concessions when we were on set. If the weather was bad, if we were running out of time, there was never a conversation, okay, we're gonna lose this scene because we had already prepared for that and padded our days 
not enough. We always want more padding, um, but padded our days in a way that uh, allowed for a little exploration, a, a little second guessing, um, and for some mistakes to happen or, or unforeseeable obstacles. So I'm really proud of us for doing that. And, and you know what? Brett was also very instrumental in planning our days and coming up with really creative solutions for shooting scenes we had in the script, it was a pivotal part of our climax, was Mara running through the woods at night. And we were writers in a, in a foxhole together when we imagined this sequence. We didn't take a step further and say, okay, what does it take to shoot a girl running in the woods at night? And Brett explained what it takes, <laughs> how much time it takes, how much crew it takes, how much money it takes. Um, but that was one thing we could not give up. Uh, in in prep that was a sequence that we could not kill and so Brett came up with a really creative solution and most importantly how many of those big tall lights that they get on Hollywood movies yeah what are they called the cranes crane <laughs> the cranes that we don't have <laughs> yeah it, it takes a lot to shoot yeah. somebody running through the woods at night boy does it oh yes I was to say um, so Brett went scouting on his own and found this knoll a wooded knoll where the sun in twilight after it had set, uh, the sky would be a deep enough blue, but also bright enough because of the nearness of a field or close enough to a tree line where that light would be seeping in so we could actually register photographic images. And the sequence is beautiful, it's poetic, it's heart pounding, it's the climax of our film and our heroine is running towards her new destiny. And it took a crew of four because of Brett's ingenuity. That, that's a wonderful answer and, and testament to your, to your cinematographer. Uh, but you also didn't answer my question. You said, oh. you said you shot for 642 days. That's no, it was, a, it was probably a 642 day process. Or? Oh, I was kidding. Oh no, my no, gosh, yeah, I was so, kidding. No, no. Uh, how, how many days, how many days did it take to actually get your principal photography in the can? So our shoot was very short. <laughs> um, we had three weeks of prep, which is not a lot. And then we had 20 and a half days of shooting. That's incredible. That's and amazing. I mean, that's 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 so short. That's that's it, not even three weeks. It's, so. No, it's not. <laughs> um, yeah, we had 20 days in what we called day zero, which is was just a bare bones crew with Brett, a first AC, a, a grip, um, a second AC, us and our lead Alice, and what we talked about before about a girl running through the woods at night that sequence was shot on our day zero wow so that was mm -hmm. the your climax was was yes. the, the very first stuff that you mm -hmm. rolled from this mm -hmm. oh. and then i'll also add that the very end of the film which is a gorgeous sequence was also the very first scene that we shot so day one of the film of our very short shoot i don't want to give anything away but it was a very intimate and a very emotional scene uh, and we had Alice Engler, who plays Mara Childs, and Thomas Mann, who plays Augie Slaughter, mm -hmm. and Brett, in very intimate confines. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm really excited for people to see that sequence because it was just one of those serendipitous moments on set where as filmmakers, you're terrified, you're asking actors who haven't been on this journey yet to deliver their final emotions, and then with your cinematographer, cuddled up with them <laughs> and he was sensitive and he was generous and gave them the emotional space that they needed um, 
and the scene is extraordinary performance wise but my gosh is it also gorgeous visually mm. you got your hard stuff uh some of the hardest stuff done right up front and did that actually give you a, a sense of relief as you were going through that you knew that these key moments were already in the can I, no <laughs> i don't know if i ever felt relief through the uh, process of shooting but i will say it was galvanizing because we were we were all tasked with being our best right out of the gates. It set the bar for all of us, which was really a bonding experience. And I think accelerated the trust process that's that you work towards between, you know, uh, directors and their crew, directors and their cast. And I think that it's actually a fantastic way to start the shooting process is, you know, do something that scares you right away. We won't really only got time for uh, another couple of questions sure. here. So um, I want to ask you guys to give a shout out to your producers. Um, I mean, uh, th that for a lot of people is the hardest part of making yeah. a movie, fi finding money, finding champions, finding people that believe in you. Uh, tell us a little about the process of getting your producers on board. We have the most extraordinary and supportive and collaborative producing team. It all started with Danielle Robinson of G-Base. She read our very first draft, as Dan said, almost six years ago, and she saw something in us that we didn't see in ourselves, and she said, we are going to make this movie and we're going to do it together. And through her producing partners, Alan Siegel and Gerard Butler, they supported us from day one as well. And a few years later, we found the missing link to this, the missing piece of our puzzle, which was Amasia Entertainment, Bradley Gallo and Michael Helfant, and they also fully financed our film. And meeting with Bradley and Michael, we knew that we were off to the races because not only were they going to support our vision, they were gonna support our well-being. They were so incredibly collaborative and supportive, and we knew as first-time filmmakers that we had this incredible foundation of veteran producers to rely on as we crewed, as we prepped. They were there as sounding boards and support systems moving um, on the, <laughs> the barreling train towards production. Um, but I will just say, like, on a personal note, they really cared about everybody on set. They really cared about our crew, and it was a hard shoot, and they did everything they could, even at their own expense, to make sure the crew knew that they were appreciated, that they were not taken for granted and that we understood how hard it is to make an independent film. And and they really worked to create a space on set that was equitable. We had uh, almost 41% of our crew was women. And that was a big priority for Dan and myself. And our producers shared that. And it was it felt like we were a family going away to camp. and. And that's in large part because of who our producers are. That's excellent. Dan, did you uh, want to add anything to that at all? Uh, I'll just give you the option. I could just go on, on, and, on, and, on. and on about them. Um, you know, because the truth is, is that we were untested filmmakers and we had written a good script. But there is a really big difference between writing a script and making a movie. Mm -hmm. um, and I know with every fiber of my being that we are here because of them. And I know they've even said not to say this, but they were mentors to me to us mm -hmm. they taught me on the ground as we were making this movie and everything that they taught me is the gift of a lifetime thank you guys so much for coming on the show thank you thank you thank you so much it was a pleasure thank you for having us go see our movie in theaters i hope soon <laughs> where can people find out more information about this movie if uh, if uh, if they wanted to look this it up is, is there a, a facebook page is there a um no we don't have any social media yet instagram actually. nothing um soon i 
Yeah, I'm going to guess the orchard. Yeah, the we're, orchard. We're the orchard. having lunch with our new distributors today, so yeah. I'm, I'm going to tell them the people want to know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks Thank you. So the last one up uh, is a film called Ms. Purple. That's right, Ms. Purple. Ms. Purple is uh, a really cool story. It's a immigrant story set in Los Angeles, and uh, I was very fortunate to talk to both the director and the DP. So I got both of them, in, them together. It was the first interview that I conducted at, at Sundance, and uh, it's a it's it's good. And I, I would love to have the I would love to have them back on the show. And I'm not going to talk about it anymore. I'm going to just get right into it. Here we go, Ms. Purple. Justin, Antti, thank you so much for coming to the Cinematography Podcast. Thanks for having us. Hey, uh, we're at the Sundance 2019 uh, Film Festival, and you just had a sold-out world premiere of your new movie called Miss Purple. Yes. Uh, tell our listeners a bit what uh, Miss Purple is all about. Well, it's about a, an estranged brother and sister reconnecting during the final days of their father's life. They're uh, from Koreatown, Los Angeles, and the sister, it's told through, the film's told through her POV, and what she does for money to pay for hospice care is she's a karaoke hostess. The movie deals with a lot of uh, melancholy and, and mm. dark, uh, dark. <laughs> it's it's a it's a dark movie, but there are, are moments of uh, levity and of brightness and happiness. Uh, when when you're when you're putting together a movie like this and you're and you you're envisioning what it's gonna what it's gonna look like, uh, how early do you get anti involved? How early do you start to craft the, the the look of this movie? Pretty early on. It's like, you know, even when, when I'm writing, I'm writing ideas by him. We're talking a lot about what we're trying to accomplish in the film, what, what we want to what, what we, we make it feel like, even sometimes music. You know, I think um, all that, all those, uh, all those factors uh, affect the decisions on how the movie's going to look. Antti, where, where does the first sort of uh, creative spark come from? Does it come from uh, conversations with Justin? Does it come from reading the script? What, uh, where does your vision for the movie, does it come from other works? What's your, what's your process? Yeah, just some backstory here. We did our first feature together called Gook, and that, uh, was in Sundance 2017 and one others were and that one was in black and white. So this one, the first conversation was just about color. Like we knew, <laughs> sounds like trivial, but color is gonna was a big, big part in our prep. That's not that's not trivial at all. That that yes. that's major. That's really yeah. important. Yeah. And also the film is called Miss Purple and uh, magenta. Like purple is magenta. Magenta is actually a really hard color to do well on. Um, and then the whole meaning, like it's a rite of passage film, the whole meaning behind it, it's uh, you know, purple in Korean culture, it's the color of mourning. Like mourning someone dying, yeah, or death, yeah. I get it, like, yeah. uh, like, uh, like black would be, or... or yeah, black. exactly. It, talk about it a little bit with the color palette, because I know there was some, some purples in this and stuff too, but there was a lot of greens, mm -hmm. there's a lot, I mean, there, mm -hmm. there's uh, everything that happens in the karaoke parlor and stuff that has a, a really heavy neon sort of uh, lighting. Look, what, talk, talk about your, your color palette a little bit, how you wanted to approach this. Yeah, we, we watched plenty of res reference films, one, two of the main key ones are uh, Wong Kai Wei's Happy Together. I believe that was on Agfa stock, that was a shot black and white, it's a mixture of all that with just a tiny, tiny crew in Argentina and then it was very, very beautiful. Just every, like all the frames have such an emotional response. We brought on both our production designer and Eunice, um, <coughs> the costume designer, early on to do this test on camera 
to see to find our palette and then we also watched uh Coretta's nobody knows and then i believe that was on fuji stock and then that's what, that was the green you notice notice about and then green is actually the opposite of purple and then we thought that would be a nice thing to you know to bring the contrast with you know her purple dress or like some specific moments where we used purple lighting and then to to have that to have a cohesive tint throughout the whole film when you were visualizing this movie i mean i immediately was struck by Wan kar wai you, you mentioned Wan kar wai and was that was Wan kar wai a, a heavy influence for the look early on for you as well justin was that something you were thinking about <clears throat> Yeah, absolutely. I think um, his films elicit a certain type of feeling and tone that, uh, you know, is really special. And, uh, you know, this film, I, I knew early on that, that um, I was going to overwrite and then start to cut the dialogue. So, I, you know, there's a lot of mood involved. So the look is, is, is so important um, to accomplish that, you know, um, mood and you know, the, the, the cinematography and also sonically, you know, I think they go hand in hand. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was an earlier discussion we had. And we also, you know, looked at a myriad of films, but I think those were, is the most noticeably present in the film. Yeah, and very early on, Justin made it clear that he wants to, us to design a visual language that's, that's unique for the film. He doesn't want to, you know, follow any trends or imitate anything that's happened before. But as you know, that's that, that's a really tall task. You know? Yes, indeed. <laughs> um, I I think it's really difficult to be in, entirely original in, in anything and have it be be good. But I will tell you, I think you really achieved. And, and this is a question actually, I I really like to ask DPs and directors. Mm-hmm. Seeing the end result, seeing the final product, uh, and thinking about it when you're on set. I know a lot. Of, well, this is something we talk about on the podcast quite a bit. Is how much of your original intent and vision ended up there? Because there's limitations of budget. I I I don't know what the budget was. You're probably not saying what the budget is, but I can tell that you probably had some limited resources mm-hmm. to to put this this movie together. Um, but it looks like you maximized them really really well. You got very very high production value. But when you're when you're on the set and what you're hoping it's going to achieve and what you get, did you think you hit a hundred percent? Did you deliver exactly what you wanted? You think it's you got, never a hundred. You think you got. <laughs> I mean, what, you, you aim for 100, and I know some people say if you get 50, you, you did great. Yeah. So, uh, what? I would say, you know, just on my end, um, th- I think that's why those early conversations were really important to start to start that thought process. And we knew what our budget was going to be, so we designed, you know, and I kept I kept bringing it up to, to you know, not only Auntie, but, you know, the production team, everybody, that this is what we're trying to do. And so the, and these, are, these are our resources. Let's be creative. I think we were able to accomplish a lot of what we had, our, our original intention was. There's a few moments towards the beginning of the shoot, I was a little, I got a little um, worried because um, we were shooting everything in the karaoke first and uh, I didn't want that much neon. But, you know, me and Auntie had a long conversation about like, well, how Auntie was saying, well, then how are we going to, you know, make this place have the, that, that mood and the tone? And also like there's limitations within that location as well, you know? We had to. It was operating karaoke, so we had to, we had to pack up every day. We can, it wasn't like a hot set where we can leave and and leave everything there. So that was also very difficult to, to create a look that was its own thing, you know, specifically in that type of location. Consider, but you know, after we kind of worked it out between us, considering that I'm pretty happy, you know, in terms of translation from vision to screen. Anti, same same for you. How do how do you feel? Yeah, um, we we brought the same crew back, you know. From our last film, Manny Reynolds, the, the editor, 
and then we'll also look at the last time i think we'll be on what really worked for us was you know the, the moving masters handheld but just being move the camera really intuitively and capture like the raw performances but this time we also wanted to show like you know to put in the film how we have grown as filmmakers since two years ago and uh, and also you know just our sensibilities and also i think uh showed justin this uh, interview with chivo and malik how they were pushing each other to push you know really push the visuals and then malik was saying you know in, in editing he, there's gonna be a sense of trust and comfort where he's not gonna embarrass, embarrass you and put you know it's a par stuff again so I think that's that's our conversation on set. We could really, you know, react intuitively and really push and be bold. And then we did, like, I think I did a lot of stuff if, if you know, it was for, like, the typical or, like, normal directors. I would just get fired. <laughs> <laughs> that's a concern. <laughs> but a few of those things ended up in the movie, and then we felt, you know, it was fresh and unique, and then... The key thing, you know, emotional response to it, how we felt. So there's a good, there's a good working relationship. There's a lot of trust. You guys have already gone essentially to war once before with the, with the previous project, and now you're 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 doing it again. A lot of another topic we we discuss a lot is the sort of the DP director relationship and uh, the shorthand that sort of develops after you, you guys are, are working uh, for a while. Um, going into this movie, was there one sort of like aha moment or gotcha shot that the, the like a key thing that you really wanted to sell in a particular way that you achieved was there like one particular moment you're really really proud of there's a lot of proud moments in this film I'm, i really I really don't care if other people like it or not <laughs> i want them to like it but you know i just really am proud of it and but one thing i thought worked really well is we only use two lenses we use a 55 anamorphic Tadeo vintage lens, and then we also use a 300 millimeter canon lens and i had suggested the 300 from the get-go because i wanted to have this voyeuristic aspect to it. And I also wanted, you know, to have in the foreground like traffic and, and so it's not just, you know, so we, there's movement in the frame. And at first I think Auntie was like, how about we get like, you know, maybe two long lenses. I'm like, let's just go with one. And uh, I think, but then once Auntie kind of understood what I was trying to do, we embraced it. And I really love that language, that visual language we set up because it's it's not that noticeable even, but it's it's really interesting and it's it does do something emotionally, I feel, to, um, you know the the sort of intimacy with the characters yeah i think in prep we tested a lot a lot of lenses over town and you know in la it's such a rich uh cinema history so we came across these two like very expressive lenses and then it was a unique combo and we also want to keep everything you know simple too you know like i would to be honest half of it is just out of necessity like we just couldn't have the budget to get like all the toys we want but in the end it worked out well you know just getting to know these two lenses really well how they were reacting these different situations and uh, it was you know a unique visual language well, let me tell you, you made really good use of those two lenses, and I, I would say um, if you had a 55 and a, and a 300, I'm going to guess about 80% of that movie is on the 55. Yes. So yes. And uh, and beautiful flares, all kinds of wonderful flare work, all of the sorts of light and moments you were doing with um, with your really lead actress with the hand blocking the sun and yeah. all kinds of stuff with the trees. You guys really did some some lovely stuff, and as I was sitting in, in the, the audience watching it, it, it is moving. I think that you guys will get a, a lot of people who – um, want to see it for the visuals in addition to the story and, and want to have that, that complete experience. And so from my perspective, it's a real success. You guys mm -hmm. did, a, did a great job. And uh, I have to ask you, what's, um, 
what's next on your sort of lineup and agenda? Where where do you where do you want uh, what do you, what do you want to go next? Do you want to do studio movies, another independent film? What's your what's your what's your goal? Um, so you know, I think there's a certain kind of purpose and thing you know, Auntie and I are trying to do, and you know, he talked about Chivo and Malik, but also like Chivo and Quadone or Chivo and Inaritu. I think those are all people we really look up to. They tell very specific stories that are very relatable and we really want to go in that direction you know the next film you know i've been i've been writing this script for about a year and a half close to two years uh is set up over at macro and and i'm hoping to shoot that this year um and uh it'll be set hopefully in new orleans me and auntie have been talking you know preliminary conversations but we want to keep pushing you know we want to be bold we want to we don't want to do the safe thing visually and also we want to uh you know we're still young in our careers uh, as filmmakers that i think there's a lot to do you know there's a lot to do still a lot to explore and i i welcome that and i don't want us to get stuck in any one sort of arena or style so i'm i want to push uh, how about you Andy? What, uh, what's next for you uh, I, I assume you're probably going to work again before the future goes uh, you, you do stuff all the time i'm guessing but uh but you know what what's your big what's your big next uh, next step yeah, I'm just gonna add to what Justin just said. Like there's all these, you know, director DP relationships that we watched and admired growing up. You know, Mark Highway and Doyle, Chris Chris Nolan and Wally, and you know all, all these all these great combinations and how they were able to re- evolve their their language throughout their their careers. And then this is something we hope we can, you know, follow their path, but also do our own thing. I think that's a wonderful way to put it. All right, so 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 gentlemen, there, there's a moment in the movie where, um, and I don't think I'm giving anything away, but a bed is being pushed uh, down the street, across the streets, and the bed seems to break. It, it to me, it looked so spontaneous and so real that I I couldn't imagine that. Um, well, I couldn't imagine that it wasn't scripted as part of part of the story, but I also get the feeling that maybe it wasn't and used it anyway. Tell me a little about the bit about shooting the bed sequence. Yeah, so um, you know. I always knew that I wanted that sequence in the film. Um, I just didn't know if we were going to get permission to do it because we shot at the busiest intersection in Koreatown on Olympic and Western. Um, so we didn't get a permit for it. But what we did is we rehearsed it like a bobsled team. We rehearsed getting the bed on the, <laughs> the truck. And we had to effectively, efficiently get the bed off, get them on the bed, get the actors out, have them push uh, them across the street safely to the other side and it's a busy street that's where I think the 300 millimeter really came in handy because we were pretty far away so nobody knew we were filming they came on the scene and as they're pushing you know we probably th- knew we'd get maybe one take and he was pushing and the bell f- bed fell apart what I'm so thankful to the actors is is that they didn't break character they stayed in character he just stayed on the bed like as if he was actually comatose and the, the other actor proceeded to like put to the bed back together and people in that were around were freaking out because they didn't know it was fake. Um, so that's a really happy accident um, that we experienced. But like the, the choice of the 300 was absolutely integral to, to make that happen. And do you wanna, you wanna comment about that? Yeah, I think <laughs> <laughs> once, you know, we got that and watching the dailies, you know, we thought like to do that, like, with the real, we have to like ha- have complete control, set up all these cars, all these, you know, extras. It would take forever. We got it in like five minutes. Yeah. And then, you know, you know, Justin, like he saw it like 
how effective it was and he wants plenty more of that so <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and that's that's the other reason like i love working with auntie is i have create i have really crazy ideas and then i run it by him and auntie's always like what you know and he gets he's just like how are we gonna do that and then but then it's always like okay let's figure it out you know we we, we did it that's a great story where can people find out more about this movie where can people find out more about you can you want to do you have are you on the the twitterverse or the instagrams or the the facebooks or the websites you want you want to plug plug your movie here absolutely um so the best way to to follow my career and and uh the movie is probably through twitter which is my handle is just justin chan and uh instagram which also the handle is just justin chan um you know it's a the one with the check mark uh is is the right one we will put links in the show notes too oh, so great. people can find you that way. Uh, Andy, what about you? Where can people find you? I'm on Instagram at Andy Chang, and I was the best way to see this movie is you know hopefully some news good news comes by and you can see it in the theaters. Yeah, that'd be the the dream. All right, well, gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's really been a pleasure, and I, I hope that you will come back again with your next project. Yes, thanks for having us. Thank you. All right, so that wraps up part three of our 2019 Sundance specials. We have part four coming up, which is, you know, the one that I'm the most excited about. Yes, I know. We saved the best for last for you, Ben. Uh, we know this that this one is about, the next one is about midnight movies, horror, and the occult. Yay. So come back for that. But before we do that, uh, we want to thank Alana Cody, our intrepid producer, for preparing us for this recording session uh, better than we are executing this recording session. And we want to thank Kay's Alatrachi for providing 100% of the music that we've heard on uh, all of the cinematography podcast, including this episode. And we have to thank our editorial staff, Ben Katz and Abby Corbett. Uh, so come back uh, real soon and you'll see us in your feed. Check out part four of the Sundance 2019 special series. The final episode. The final episode. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.